Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, it's my uh, honor to serve as the dean of the school and uh, to uh, serve as the master of ceremonies for tonight's event. This is uh, the contribution of our school to the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the founding of the University of California, San Diego. When this university was created, the one mandate that uh, was embraced by the founding faculty members was that this would be a distinctive university of excellence, a place that didn't try to do the repeated tasks of excellence, but forged entirely new fields of knowledge and understanding. Uh, when I was a young scholar, I had the uh, pleasure of getting to know Roger Revell, the founding uh, mover of this campus. And uh, Roger observed to me that the test of great scholarship was often confused. He said, there are people who are great technicians who are fine, fine scholars that you are proud to have as colleagues. But the greatest of scholars and the greatest scholarly institutions discover a great problem and take it seriously for a long time. And that is exactly the bet that this school was founded upon 24 years ago. It was a bet that we were starting to see the beginnings of a transformation in global civilization, a transformation that could be summarized as the shift of global civilization from having a focal point in the Atlantic, tied between Europe and the Americas, to a new focal point in the Pacific, tying together Asia and the Americas as a pivotal driving force for global civilization. The first 24 years of the school was, in a sense, about exploring the dynamics that would lead up to that transformation and understanding how they were evolving. Our next 24, 50, and 100 years will be understanding the consequences of the fact that the transformation has now occurred. This school is dedicated to understanding that transformation, its consequences, the ways that we can work with that transformation to make both Pacific and global societies better, and to train the leaders of the future for the task of this new evolving order. That's an exciting mission for those of us who are privileged to be on the faculty and the staff. It's an excitement that we hope that we always share uh, with our students. And it is a task that has created great good company, all of you who are here tonight. Uh, Jim Fallows is the very best sense of a public intellectual, but most importantly, he is in the very best sense what journalism can bring to observation and understanding of the changes that we live through moment to moment. We're very proud and pleased to have Jim Fallows join us tonight to begin our anniversary celebration. Jim? <laughs> My plan for the 
the minutes of my prepared presentation for you before having a, 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 a discussion of any topic you'd like to raise, there are two main issues that I'd like to discuss. One of them more timely and focused and involving the work I've been doing for these past four years in China. The other more thematic and even quasi-academic about the role of institutions like this and the way they help uh, this nation, the nation of the United States, deal with a changing world, a Pacific-centric world. The first part of the presentation will involve U.S.-China relations. And I will pose a question and give you my hypothesized answer to it, and I'll see whether you agree or disagree later on. That will be part one. Part two will be talking about a larger question of learning, learning about Asia. And you'll see why I emphasize this as I've thought about the last 25 years of IRPS, which coincides with the time I've been spending a lot of my own time in Asia writing about it for, the, uh, for a Western audience. The issue of how we learn about different cultures and the ways in which America in particular is good or bad at learning, that is a theme that I want to... Uh, to to explore for you. And then I have a quasi-uplifting but not entirely uplifting conclusion and a challenge for those of you who are in this institution and its products for the future. So that's the plan for the next while. The first part is to raise this policy question. And it involves the U.S. and China. And the way I would put the question is this. As we look at the, as we look at the news of the last year between the U.S. and China, it's almost a year ago since Barack Obama made his somewhat controversial trip to, to China and all the disputes that, con- that have come since that time. As we look at the last, say, five years of China's continuing economic rise and America's economic tro- uh, problems in those say- same times, as we look at the last generation and the shifts in the relative positions of China and America in, in that, that time, do we think that the fundamental bargain between China and the United States over the past 30 years has changed or has not changed? That is, are we at a moment of basic continuity with a bargain that was struck with Jimmy Carter, then my employer, and Deng Xiaoping, then the leader of China, and that has prevailed through different administrations for 30 years? Is that basically in place, or are we at some point of inflection? inflection? All of you who have studied China or just read the newspaper know how hard it is to assert anything about the future. And anything I will say and anything that we all think is subject to unpredictabilities. But I am going to assert to you that I'm first going to describe what this bargain is. And then I will list some of the reasons to think that it might have changed. Then I'm going to argue that I do not think it has changed. That for the moment, we should assume the Jimmy Carter, Deng Xiaoping bargain is basically in place. And then I'll try to give some of the implications for that. So that's part one I'm going to, to talk, and let's go, let's go through that now. When I say there has been a bargain that has been more or less continuous in all the American administrations of the past 30 years, administrations as different in other ways as Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush I and Bill Clinton and George Bush II and Barack Obama now and all the same genealogy on the Chinese side, it seems to me we can identify three constant elements between the two countries in that time, which with the ups and downs, you know, one extreme up and down 20 years ago in Tiananmen Square, incidental ups and downs over the years, have more or less been in place. The three elements, in my view, are, number one, a belief on both sides 
that it's better overall to be partners than enemies, that at least on a 51-49 basis and maybe more than that, you should treat the other country as someone you can work with more than you can work against them. That is, this is not necessarily a built-in Cold War type struggle. It's not an England versus Germany turn of the 20th century type struggle where conflict seemed inevitable. But basically, it was something where, on balance, you would try to work together. Point two of the bargain, in my view, was that China's rise and enrichment was not necessarily zero sum. That as with the rest of the world, that as China prospered, it didn't all have to come out of the hide of American workers, European workers, Mexican workers, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's point two. There are ways in which China's prosperity could be, while disruptive to other parts of the world, not necessarily impoverishing of them or, or, or diminishing them. And point three, that notwithstanding the basic partnership or the 5149 partnership, notwithstanding the positive sum economic interactions, nonetheless, there would still be serious disagreements between the two countries, disagreements over territory, disagreements over strategy, disagreements over uh, non-directly involved issues, whether it's Iran now or North Korea or what have you, disagreements, of course, on internal Chinese issues of the moment, whether it's Google or the Nobel Prize selections or or whatever. So that's, that's the bargain I'm saying. Partnership, prosperity, but real ongoing disagreements. I think it's worth laying these things out because it's a different sort of bargain than I believe the United States has had with any other power through its history. Because most of the places we have dealt with as partners have, have not had the third element of the real fundamental disagreements about political system, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think that if you look at this uh, bargain, you can say that with the extremes going up and down, with embassy bombings in, in Serbia, with shooting downs of the plane, with all the other things which have made for stress, basically this has resonated on both sides through the years. And a lot of what I've written in The Atlantic over the last four years has been essentially about the different elements of this, including the second part, that while why China's prosperity was transforming in the United States, but not necessarily a, a straight drain. That, that there were changes in the world's economy driven by China, but not simply uh, draining away. So here's the question. If we assert that's been the way from Jimmy Carter to at least the beginning of Barack Obama's time in office, are there reasons to think we're changing now? Something in the real environment, something in the nature of both countries uh, is, is forcing either of them or both to a different kinds of deal. Let's go through the elements of possible stress to this bargain And I will assert why any of them might end up changing it, but I think they have not reached that point so far. So what are are these? First, the real economic situation between the two countries. Has that changed in such a way that they no longer can work in a basically uh, partnership-type relationship? And if you looked at a lot of the advertisements in the last political campaign in the U.S., you could say that this is assumed, asserted to be the case in a lot of of American population now, that if China is getting rich, then it must mean America is getting poor. To my mind, the two, and I'll come back to these again, there were two political advertisements used in the last campaign, which are really significant and fascinating for uh, understanding the U.S.-China dynamics. One is the Chinese professor ad. How many of you have seen that one? This is worth... um, After you leave this session, fascinated as you will be by all the things you hear, and after you go to the class, as some of you are doing, the next time you're at a search engine, don't do it now, please, but when you're, next time you're at a search engine, 
go to YouTube and search for Chinese professor ad. I won't say more about it, but it's something that I think will be the one advertisement that's remembered from this, uh, this, this political campaign. And I've done a number of sort of glosses on it uh, on the Atlantic site since then. The other ad, which is significant, was one that was used in the Pennsylvania senatorial race by the Democratic candidate Joe Sestak against the successful Republican Pat Toomey. Did any of you see this one? It was, uh, it was, it, the, the theme was... Um, Pat Toomey says he's in favor of creating jobs, gong sound, in China. And it went on sort of in this realm for, for 30 seconds. And the smoking gun proof that Pat Toomey was against American workers and the larger uh, idea of the U.S.-China relationships was a quote from Pat Toomey having said about five years ago, I think it's good that China's prospering. That was it. That, that was, and, and you could also tell it was cut off in the middle of the sentence. So he was about to go and say... You know, nonetheless, America has to prosper too. But so, are there reasons to think that in the fundamental economic uh, relationships between the countries, China's gain is now coming at a one-to-one loss from the United States or from other trading partners? There are ways in which you could imagine this happening. For example, if China were able to move from its relatively low-wage manufacturing strength to being a real competitor in higher-end brands, that is not simply having $100 of the worth of this $1,000 computer, but $800 if it's able to match the brands and the software, et cetera. That could be a threat to, to now developed countries. And, and we know that the Chinese authorities are trying as best they can to move high up the brand scale. If um, the intellectual property situation became inflamed in such a way that American and Western companies felt they were just hemorrhaging uh, their, their, valuable, um, their, their valuable property that, that way, if there were other, I, I won't go through all the list of possibilities, but I, I will just simply say that, that based on my reading of the economic relationships as of now, the main forces are those that have mainly been there for the past generation or so. That is China developing, China prospering in ways that alter the work um, distribution of the rest of the world, but do not, on the whole, drain wealth from the rest of, rest of the world. So far, we haven't seen a change in that, I, I say. So this is one part of the, the relationship that is still stable, in my, my view. A second reason to think that maybe the relationship had really changed is if the politics of trade war in both countries, or either of them, became really, really serious. If there was something that was not just an election year rhetoric in one country or another, or just the government papers in China, or just speeches on C-SPAN in the U.S. saying, this other country is mainly hurting us, it's no longer something that's positive sum, it's direct zero sum, then you could think the climate was, was shifting. And I have a lot of examples here, which I, I won't go, go into. I'll simply say that on both sides, these seem like epiphenomena as opposed to real things. Six months ago, when I was doing this kind of inventory for myself, I was struck that China was not really an issue in most of the campaigns that were being run around the United States. In the past two months, it did become an issue. But it seems to me uh, that we can go into these ads in some detail. It was mainly a projection of American economic uncertainties, the chronic high unemployment rate, the problems with the housing market, and all the rest, and that there's little evidence that this will persist after the election season. Indeed, the currency bills, which come up uh, from my uh, college classmate Chuck Schumer from year to, year to year, I think these are meant as sort of debating points as opposed to being uh, really, really serious proposals. So if there were a sign on either side 
that really there was an entrenched view that partnership was the past, real enmity was the future, then we could say the bargain was changing. I believe that, that the evidence does not reach that level on either side yet. Um, if next, next possible reason to think the bargain was changing, if the perceived overall economic situation between in the psyches of both countries, that is to say, not the economic reality strictly, not the politics, but just sort of the zeitgeist in both countries, to use a term that's native to neither language, therefore, therefore neutral, if that had changed in such a way they couldn't get along, then perhaps that also would be a propulsive force driving them apart. The time when I thought this was actually most likely was during the, in my view, ill-conceived opening ceremonies for the Beijing Olympic Games. That, uh, how many of you saw the South Park episode that followed the Beijing uh, opening ceremony? You know, obviously for the authorities in China, this was the way to magnify the greatness and strength of the government to show to one and all they could have thousands of people working in perfect harmony. To many people who were seeing it in China, including me, I thought, my God, they got people to work in harmony for one night. You know, it was, it was impressive that you had lots of people, mainly PLA members, doing these, uh, these, uh, these performed drills. The South Park episode, it was Cartman, who we all know and love, saying, having nightmares about the Beijing opening ceremony, saying the Chinese are taking over everything. If they can have 10,000 people pounding drums in perfect synchronicity, they can do everything else. And often the way that the successes of China are adduced in our, uh, in our newspaper columns is to that effect. The Chinese can build perfect trains, they can build X, Y, and Z, and so this, uh, therefore we have to think that they are, are, are taking over. Um, if the perception on China's side was that the United States has entirely collapsed, lost its revitalization, lost its legitimacy, lost all the other things which made China feel it was a partner to deal with in some way, then I think we could have a dangerous situation leading to unwholesome and anti-partnership aspects on, on both sides. I think that there are reasons for thinking that the United States has lost various degrees of its confidence and, and sense that it is going the right direction, and upticks, especially in official China's sense of overbearingness with the, with the outside world. But I will just say, and I'll be happy to answer questions later on if you want, that I think these are not yet deeply entrenched in either countries, in either country, and the deeper of them, that is, American sense of concern about our own future, China is not fundamentally involved in that. That's more an American phenomenon than it is something that China is directly involved in. Let me move more quickly through a similar list of, uh, of items. If the real balance of financial power had changed in such a way that China was really the boss of the United States and could use its paymaster power to say, you must do this, you can't do that, change your policies here or else we're going to turn off the spigot, that too could change the perception and the actions on the United States side. It seems to me a more plausible understanding of the balance between the U.S. and China is the financial counterpart to mutually assured destruction from the Cold War era, that both of them are financially very much exposed to the vagaries of each other's economies. Uh, Americans feel bad to have so much Chinese money invested here. The Chinese often feel bad about that too, of having so much money invested in the American stock market. And so far, I think there is a sense, while there are, while there's greater confidence on the side of Chinese officials in saying, 
we avoided the financial currency collapse in the way that many of you didn't. So you have to listen to our ideas or we can listen less to, to, to your ideas. I think that, that, again, I do not yet seem so, see the signs of real permanent shift of, uh, of, the, of the fundamentals of the Chinese being able to be the paymasters of, um, of the Western world. I know that some of Susan Shirk's students here will be discussing later this evening the article I did about this about uh, two years ago called the $1.4 trillion question about how it came about that a very poor country was investing so much money in a very rich country and what sort of leverage that gave each partner. And I think the, while the numbers are different from the time when I wrote that article, I think the fundamentals are, are, are still there. Um, there. Another item on the list would be, again, if the larger strategic sense of leaders on both countries was shifting in such a way, the Chinese really felt that a 30-year partnership, a 30-year apprenticeship, a 30-year lying low period was at its end. And it was their time to really take their, their, uh, their turn on the stage and start telling the Westerners what to do. Then we might also think there was a fundamental change. And the strongest evidence people would make for this, and I think uh, an overstated use of the evidence, would be the aftermath of President Obama's trip last fall, where you'll recall most of the American newspaper accounts were Obama can't get the Chinese to do this, Obama trying to be nice, the Chinese government won't reciprocate, etc. And I think there may have been some recalibration from the Obama administration about where they needed to push on territorial and other issues. But I would again... I'll answer more questions later. I think that on both sides, there's a sense of the continued partnership with serious differences relationship as opposed to this one-way shift that is now letting China step up and say 30 years were the past. We had the 100 years of humiliation. We have the 30 years of partnership. Now it's a new day. I don't think we we have come to that stage uh, yet. One other category is whether there are such changes in the real correlation of forces around the world, the strength of the Chinese Navy, the leverage from the rare earths controversy, other sorts of real uh, emphases and uses of national power that would make the United States and its allies feel that the pendulum had really swung back in a different direction and the world correlation of forces was was different. Um, with just without going into the details of those two, I think, again, the Chinese strength in those fields has been overstated generally in the U.S. press, and that may be, um, that may be more clearly realized on the Chinese side than on the American. Let me bring this part to a close, leaving many details uh, loose, and make the larger point. So I'm saying that two countries that have a lot in common in sort of a human terms, but many, many differences of stages of economic development, of political ideology, of strategic interests. For 30 years, they have found a way to work together more often than they've been at loggerheads. My assumption is for the foreseeable future, that is where we are too. That there are not signs, there are signs now of things which five years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now could be different and could mean a new calibration. But I think for the foreseeable future, that's not the case. And I'm not even going through all the reasons why, if you were a leader of China, you would be as worried about your own nation's future as a leader of America is is now, and and starting with with environmental environmental issues. The take-home point I'm making here, having said sort of the policy version of this 30-year bargain 
which I assert is still in place, is the main argument I've tried to make to American readers that I know I don't have to make it IRPS because you already understand this, but I'll just remind people here, and you can help me make it to the rest of the public. And the argument is they should very much take China and its region and its accomplishments and its potential seriously and be exposed to it, and be interested into it, with it, and want to be uh, involved in all the sorts of um, ferment for good and bad this creates without being frightened of it, of recognizing this as a new force in the world that deserves full attention and has both excitement and some, uh, some disruptive potential, but that it's not some kind of emo- it shouldn't be some kind of emotional fear for the United States as the kind of unknowing sense of, oh, China is rising and taking over often is translated in, in American politics. And if people who are aware of the dynamism in the Pacific can convey that message to their countrymen and to the Western world in general, they will have done a favor to, to the United States, to the Western world, to the Pacific region, and all the rest. That's the first big point. That is, there's a 30-year bargain. I think it's still there. I'll, be, I'll welcome dissenting views or questions on specifics. Now let me turn to an entirely different sort of approach and theme and talking about more of the regions, uh, the, the, more of the countries you're involved here and more uh, sort of above the daily news type issues. This has to do with how we learn about different parts of the world and what, how that's involved with the work of your, your, uh, your school. And I've thought about this with knowing I was coming here to talk about the 25 years of this school, which coincide in my own life for the 25 years of dealing with Asia. I've had an occasion to reflect on how Americans in particular think about learning from, uh, from other, other cultures. What struck me is, you know, it may seem obvious and tedious to talk about learning when we're dealing with a great university and a, and a great school, but here is why, why I emphasize it. There are many parts of the world where when you study the history and anthropology of that region and its foreign relations to, you don't waste that much time talking about learning as a big phenomenon there. The history of Western Europe in the last 100 years, the last 300 years, is not really about the cultures learning from each other. And in different ways, that applies in other parts of, of the globe, too. It strikes me that in talking about the, the history of the last, say, century in the Pacific region, the question of learning from one culture to another is really central to a lot of what at least has interested me and I think is involved in a lot of the work in your classes and your dissertations and all the rest. For example, when I first was talking with Chalmers Johnson 20 years ago, after I'd been living in, in Japan, so much of his work was about the way Meiji-era Japan had systematically learned from the Western world. The things they learned correctly, the things they learned in a particular Japanese way, the ways things are able to apply and not apply, and the whole way in which Japan was organized around this formalized learning over more than a century was very, very important to knowing about Japan's history and its prospects too. Similarly, when you talk about Southeast Asia and the various cultures there, looking about the ways they have either maintained their independence, uh, as, as Thailand did and Japan in its own form, or, or were, were, uh, were not, uh, did not maintain their independence against colonial powers, learning about military skills, scientific skills, and other things is a crucial part uh, of that. As we think about the na- early nationalist days in China, 
Um, my wife has re- recently published a wonderful book called Dreaming in Chinese about what you learn about, Chinese, about China by learning the Chinese language, which is what she mainly did during our, t- our time there. And she has a wonderful history about, during the nationalist era, all the efforts to try to improve or westernize the Chinese language uh, by, by uh, learning from, from Western alphabets and all the rest. And Mao's distinctive way of trying to learn from the Soviet Union, from the, from the Western world, um, we, we had my first encounter with China was in a way a result of a Mao era learning exercise. The first time that my wife and I, our then two young children, went to China was in the springtime of 2006 when we were living in, in uh, sorry, in 1986. We were living in Japan and we got visas then, which were not automatically granted, as I guess they aren't now either, by becoming American delegates to the World Esperanto Conference being held in Beijing. <laughs> Uh, my wife is a lingu- was a linguistics professor, and her friend was the head of the American Esperanto League. We made our kids learn Esperanto. We learned it, too. And we, uh, we traveled all around China with, with the, the Esperantists. Um, there were a number of sort of poignant moments. Um, there were many poignant moments here. One of the poignant moments was whenever there was an important announcement, like dinner is being served, that was always in English as opposed to in Esperanto. There, there was a... <laughs> There was a, something which I, I can't quite, um, I've never written about because I couldn't figure out the right tone. But we went down the Guilin River on a boat full, on a boat of people, you know, with the wonderful Guilin Mountains, boat full of Esperantists. So the narration was being given in, in Esperanto. And, and this was a subcategory of blind Esperantists. So it was a tour boat full of blind Esperantists on the Guilin River. Um, I, I, just, I just note this for you. But, but, but the... But the other part of it was, was that, that we saw a large number of Chinese people who were then, in the mid-1980s, were then 30 and 40 years old, who had been made to learn Esperanto rather than English, because this was a way to westernize without anglicizing. And so, so it was part of the, the effort to learn, learn in those days. And when we come, I'm still on the learning theme, to the United States, it is fascinating to me the ways we are and are not able to learn from other cultures. Um, when I came back from China about a year ago, I wrote a long article for The Atlantic whose title was essentially, Are We Going to Hell? And it was trying to say, if we look systematically at these possible sources of American decline, economic, cultural, educational, whatever, what do we know about this? Uh, what, what, what can we, we uh, assume? And I would go to professors and technologists, and I'd say, is America going to hell? And they'd, they'd laugh, and I'd say, but really, are we going to hell? And try to go through it uh, seriously. One of the conclusions that was so interesting to me from the academics was how strong the reliance on Jeremiah going to hell rhetoric and thinking has been throughout our culture before we had actually achieved anything to be dissipated. Uh, Somebody pointed out that the very first America is falling short sermon on North American soil was given in 1628. It was to John Winthrop's uh, settlers saying, Back in 1620, you were so great, but now, in these recent years, things have fallen short. What's interesting is that through most of American history, the learning this involved was strictly from the Roman Empire. Even before America was an empire of any sort, people were studying the Roman fall and saying, how can we keep as a republic, not an empire? But through essentially the era of UC Estes history, that is the post-Cold War era, There's been a lot of attempt to either learn from or be alarmed by foreign challenges. 
the Soviet Union during my youth. Sputnik was launched when I was a little kid in Redlands, and that's why we learned math and languages and, and all the rest, and trying to see how were this, was the Soviet Union doing it, its, uh, it, its mathematical and science a- emphasis. Um, in the 25 years ago when IRPS was started, there was an attempt at least to observe Japan and see what inferences could be drawn. Uh, Ezra Vogel's very interesting book, Japan as Number One, had a lot of... of of implications. I wrote a book a couple of years after that called More Like Us, essentially arguing the more you saw about Japan and its strengths, the more you realized that America's strengths were different, and that if America was to succeed, it had to be in ways very different from the way that, that Japan can, can, uh, can do. And we've seen the last couple of years uh, people writing variants on Tom Friedman's um, frequent China for a Day column. That's where he said it would be great if America could be, could be China for one day, if we could have centralized planning to get uh, high-speed rail built and, and, and all, all, all the rest. Here is the reason I raise this. It has to do with the American counterpart to Meiji-era Japanese learning, the American counterpart to Chinese systematic learning from the West over these last 30 years of opening and a couple of decades before that, of how America is able to use sensory organs like IRPS and the students and alumni it creates around the world for an act of learning that I think may be difficult for us. Here is what I mean. In the Going to Hell article that I wrote for The Atlantic, I said, in many ways, America should feel good. Its universities, despite our active attempts to run them down, still are uh, beacons around the world. They attract talent from around the world. They, are, they, they can be a long-term advantage for us if we keep them up. Our openness to immigration also is a unique advantage in that talented people from around the world think they can realize their dreams here, and that is something that, is, that neither Australia nor Canada has the scale for, and nobody else has the openness that, that we have. And so there are parts of our resilient culture which we should take very seriously, But there are institutional problems we have which are genuine sources of concern that we see it is very hard to get things done through our legislature. Our beloved state of California has shown what political paralysis can look like if you make it impossible to do, make it very, very difficult to do things that are in the public interest in the era since since Proposition 13. So the question is whether it's possible for America to learn about the problems that afflict it. These problems of dealing with public issues, of things other than just sheer economic resilience. If we can find ways other than the default state of private resiliency, private innovativeness, and public increasing dysfunction that leaves our freeways, which were new when I was a kid, now looking even older than I do. That sort of thing happening. And if we had the systematic... Well, we've seen in other parts of the Pacific area how cultures have tried in a very purposeful way to learn from achievements of others. It strikes me that America of this moment has become almost uniquely resistant to learning from examples outside its own shores. Let me explain what what I mean. I've once taught, occasionally I've taught journalism classes, and I tell people the single sentence which will be struck from any, any article anybody ever writes in about American social problem is a sentence that begins, in Sweden, they. You can't have anything about Sweden. Sweden's too different from the United States. And yes, we can make a whole argument about that and how German so- labor unions are different. 
but it's become almost impossible to use an example from any other part of the world to suggest we do things differently here, whether it's voting systems, whether it's school funding, whether it's anything else. I was keeping a list of these when I was in Australia, realizing this was interesting, but you could never use it in America because it's from Australia, it's not from here. And so a challenge for the next 25 years of IRPS and for the bright people you train here and at the larger university and the larger UC system and the largest American higher educational establishment that is the core of our nation's advantage is to see how we can learn to learn. The IRPS students should be particularly gifted at this because you've seen countries that have over the last century set themselves to this task of finding ways to to see how problems are solved more effectively in other parts of the world and apply those to problems at home. The United States, I believe, is now at a time where we have great strengths, we should have confidence, we should recognize all the resilience we have, but we have real problems. And if we can find the answers to those that are just generated within our shores, we're not going to solve them as well as we should. So that is the challenge I give to you. I close this part by saying between China and America, the two major economies in this part of the world, I think we have an ongoing difficult balance, and it's within the, the skills of all of us to try to keep it going because it's in the world's interest that it happen. When it comes to learning, you all have the perspective, the preparation, the skills, and the, the future to help America among the nations of the Pacific to learn as much as it can from other societies and how they've solved their problems. With that, I'll, get, I'll say congratulations on 24 plus years, congratulations on 50 years, and many more to come. Thanks for having me here. Thank you very much, uh, Jim. I want to say that at 5.15, you were at the peak of civilization, and at 6 o'clock, you were going to hell by then. Uh, the, uh, but uh, most importantly, what I want to say is that uh, I'm always grateful when I give somebody a great introduction when they live up to it, and uh, that you did in more than abundance uh, in this talk. Uh, let me uh, open the floor. Jim has agreed to take questions for a while, and so let me... Uh, ask for some hands from the audience, and we'll start uh, over here. Hi. Uh, Glenn O'Grady. Uh, love the talk. Um, one comment. I, I think we, dis, we discount ourselves as a country of how adaptable we are. It's never easy, but if I just close my eyes and listen to voices, especially like second-generation kids, you, I mean, you'd be on this campus if you don't look at people, and then open your eyes, you'd be amazed at, at the differences. My question is, it's been a while since I've studied Chinese history, but they've, you know, through the centuries have always been internal looking, and partnerships really wasn't their game. In fact, that was sort of part of the reason for the European colonialism was to get entry into the, you know, the country. So given that perspective, I mean, is that mindset still there at the top? And, uh, you know, is that something that really can continue? And just a real quick question is, can you really consider them communist anymore? You know, thanks. Let me get a pen and and, uh, and pencil so I can write. So, on the your first point about American adaptability, I am by nature and by study an optimist about about America, about California, about life, etc. So I think that the this is a nation with, and also here's an optimistic point of view. Whenever there are American problems, just think, hey, it was worse in the Civil War. 
Yeah, so there have been, and, and during most of my adult life, politics has been in, in crisis. John Kennedy was killed. Lyndon Johnson had to leave, leave office. Richard Nixon had to leave office. Gerald Ford was just, it was not elected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been a rolling disaster. And uh, in retrospect, we all look back on all of that as, as the golden days. So the resiliency of America is, is a great strength. But, but the history of California teaches us that there are ways in which you can throw away natural advantages. When I was a kid in Redlands, everybody went to public schools. That's not the way in, in California anymore, and that's sort of a deliberate change. And California's infrastructure used to be new, now is old. Uh, so California is great and resilient, but there can be public problems. So that's, that's one thing. Um, an optimist, but with realistic concerns. China's inward-lookingness, something I like about China. So I, I will assert something that, that any of you who are Chinese or know China will know is both true and false, which is that many individual Americans and individual Chinese find it relatively easy to get along. Um, my family found it, my wife and I found it much easier to get along in China for three plus years than we did for three plus years in Japan, even though we were much better at Japanese language. And the reason is that Japan is more of a sort of integral society. Our kids went to Japanese school. They had native speaker Japanese skills, but still they were foreigners every single second. That's not the case in China as much. There's so many divisions within China. And the inward lookingness is such that Japanese people in general are more interested than in what America thinks of Japan than Chinese people are interested in what America thinks of China. They don't care. They mainly care about what China thinks about China or how Beijing is better than Shanghai or y you name it. Uh, so, so I think that the inward-lookingness is a similarity between the U.S. and China, though it makes for problems. American politics is afflicted by the fact that, say, most Americans, many American politicians have not been outside of the country. I assert that most members of the House Republican Caucus, now the majority, don't know much about the outside world. In that, they are similar to their counterparts in the Chinese government. They mainly care about, about internal affairs. This makes for blunders and often a tin ear on, on, on both sides. Um, so I think inward looking and the partnership with the U.S., I'll say two other things. Compared with, the, compared with the official view and pop culture view of a lot of other countries, the U.S. is at an advantage. There's anti-Japanese propaganda all the time, even now on Chinese TV, and you still hear about the 100 years of humiliation with, with the Brits. You don't hear as much about uh, conflicts with the U.S., so there's a, kind of, there's a more positive starting point. Uh, and, and, so I, and, so, and there are lots of human connections between China and the U.S. that I think can be, can be worked with. Are they communist? Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, uh, officially, it's, the safety net is much thinner in, in, uh, in China than it is in the U.S. Australia is a socialist state compared to the U.S. The U.S. is a socialist state compared to China, but still there are lots of government control. So it's, I think communism, if we think of communism meaning state control of a number of things, they have that. But economic and, and a, well, we could go down this path for a long way, but not communism as we thought of it in the old days. Uh, let me turn to one of our faculty members. Jim, good to see you. It's always a thrill to have you here. <laughs> um, Jim, you were in Japan at the height of the um, Japan is going to own America soon because they bought Rockefeller Center and are going to take it home with them. Um, and you were in China at the beginning of the boom of soon China will own our bonds, our cars, and everything we, we buy. Um, do you see a difference in the American attitude towards the two countries, and should there, should there be a difference? 
thank you, Sam. I went over to shake Sam's hand since we've known each other for since uh, you're one of many people I've known for a, for a long time here. Uh, and let me start at the end. I think there should be a difference in American attitude towards the two countries. Uh, I, I will again. One of my one of my overstatements will be. China and Japan are about as different economies, countries, and societies as any two one can come up with. And I think the structure of the Japanese economy, both 25 years ago and now, was in a way more of a challenge for the U.S. economy than China's is, or a different kind of challenge. For Japan, starting 25 years ago, had high-end national champion competitors to high-end U.S. competitors, you know, Toyota versus GM. 20 years ago, Toyota was saying someday it would be the world's number one car maker. You know, now it is, and GM is in receivership, although they're coming out. Uh, the Japanese market has, was much, much more thoroughly closed to foreign investment. The Chinese uh, economy has, been, has relied on foreign investment. And, I think, so, and Ch- Japan has been a rich, developed country, and China is a poor country. So I think the, uh, I, I view the Japanese economic challenge as, in a way, a more serious one than the Chinese one. China's is important for scale, but of course China has just overtaken Japan in total output, which means that the per capita output is one-tenth the level of Japan's with ten times as many people. Um, I think the... It does seem to me there is less public alarm about the Chinese menace now than there was in the late 80s, even though China is bigger. Maybe that's for the rational reasons, like I'm saying, difference in economic structure, uh, it probably is some reason other than that, as you would be better t- able to explain that than I am. I still think that it's remarkable, given the trade, the cultural differences and the trade balances, how little anti-Chinese sort of uh, rhetoric and, and sentiment there is compared with both what there was about Japan and what there could be. So I think it's, it, it's, it's a, sort of a political season ad theme as opposed to something deep. Hank Nordoff, Jim, nice to see you. I just really wanted to um, calibrate, if I may, your, your thoughts about the economic Chinese versus the political Chinese. <clears throat> I spent uh, six years living in Asia in the 70s, in Korea and Japan, and, and see the, the Chinese really as, as economic animals, as though they are gifted with the entrepreneurial gene. And so long as the economy is growing, the standard of living is increasing, the quality of life is good, they are either going to forego or postpone their political aspirations, the liberty and the freedom that you talked about. I mean, why substitute an enlightened economic powerhouse for some bungling politicians who are interested primarily in getting reelected? But there has to come a point where their growth slows and, and there are some perhaps agitation maybe from outside the country saying, gee, you people have no freedom and they're going to push for these things. Um, what do you think? What is that tipping point and, and what sort of growth or, or negative slide do we have to see before that political uh, desire is, is unearthed and, and causes economic difficulties? This, too, is a very interesting question, which I, I will answer in this way. Uh, first, I think that without using the term economic animal, I would say that, that, that the government in China, for all of its problems and its heavy-handedness, I believe in, enjoys general assent from the population because most people's lives has been getting, have been getting better most of the time over the past 30 years. And so if year by year you're more likely to have a job, to get an apartment, to get a car, then why rock the boat? You know, the system is basically working. And most of the protests I've seen, we've all heard of these 70,000-a-year protests around the country. They've been mainly 
asking the central government to intervene against local landlords, local bullies of, of some kind. So I think first, the government generally enjoys assent. As also in U.S. politics, the main indicator of whether incumbents are going to stay or go is the unemployment rate. You know, the, the sort of economic prosperity is the main thing that drives politics in a lot of places. Second, I think that the central government is extremely alert to possible sources of discontent and rebellion around the country. And while its second plan B is simple repression, plan A is finding some way to kind of reduce the tension. So during the, the big slowdown of the last two years, there were new health insurance plans and public works and all the rest. So I think they are very alert to that. Much as the government is not good at sensing international reaction, I think they are very good in sensing internal reaction. But then point three, I'm just thinking of a lot of people I know who their parents may have been farmers, but they are now university students in, in Chengdu or wherever, and they would like to go to France sometime, and they would like to be able to use Google, and they'd like to be able... So I think there are... You can see in just people's lives, even though they're getting richer, there's more, more space they'd like to have. So I think it's a balance between the desires of the public to not rock the boat, but sort of enjoy more of the prerogatives of life, and the government's ability to to kind of keep ahead of that. So the question is why the government feels it has to be as heavy-handed as it is. It would have made so much sense for them to let, you know, never to arrest Liu Xiaobo or to, you know, to respond in some way other than this hard line to the Nobel Prize. So um, this is one of the many dynamics just to watch un- un- unfold. We have time for, I think, two more questions. Let me take one of our students right yeah. here. I didn't know I hadn't been admi- I had been admitted. I'm not a student here, but thank you. <laughs> but you're a student. Well, that's a mistake. Okay. Yeah. You're a student demographic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Fellows, I'm a, I subscribe to the Atlantic. Oh, and I thank read you. Your articles. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not happy with what you say most of the time. But it's okay. I had I had I had two questions. Actually, I'll just ask them real quick. The first one is uh, what the the professor brought up and uh, uh, was related to. Uh, a point that you raised that you said that the, the, the dynamic between the U.S. and China has not fundamentally changed the last 30 years. But I, I believe things change much faster. I mean, if you look at what the professor mentioned, too, about Obama's recent visit to Asia, which was almost like pointedly avoiding and kind of courting uh, China's perceived economic enemies like India, Indonesia, South Korea, and also supporting India's uh, nomination to the Security Council, which China is not at all interested in, if I'm if I'm correctly informed. And uh, so I think that that seems to be, I don't know if it's a pointed snub, but it seems to be some kind of uh, gesture from the Obama administration. The second point is, you brought up about uh, what the uh, what the, what the uh, lady here brought up about uh, political freedom, and it always amazes me how both people in China and I, I could be corrected if I'm wrong, but even Chinese American—I mean, Chinese who live outside the country—seem to have almost no interest in political opening. And I—and it's—it's almost very strange to me because, the—I mean, for anyone around the world, even though you might be getting a better car and apartment, the, the way for a society to progress and to to become uh, uh, to mature is to have political independence and intellectual independence. And it's really surprising to me how this does not seem to be a factor at all. In, in this dialogue, and I'd like to know your views on that. Thank you. As with many of the other rich questions, I'm sorry both that, that I have to try to compress this and that I'm so tired. These two things together are making me a sort of fall short of what I'd like to do, but let me try to, to address these two good, good points. On the point about the trip and the, the, the changes, things are changing faster than I suggest, 
One of the lessons I learned when I worked in government, I was Jimmy Carter's speechwriter for a couple of years, is that often events are overinterpreted from the outside. You think there's a master plan when actually as a result of just chaos, mistake, you know, last... And so remember the circumstances of this trip to China's, you know, perceived enemies. Uh, Number one, Obama made a big trip to China a year ago, you know, went all around... Uh, Number two, this trip was cobbled together as a result of two previous canceled trips. Now, Obama was going to go to Indonesia and, and Australia, but then he didn't because of the BP oil spill and the health care vote. So Australia wasn't sort of uh, the Australians. I'll go into that later on. But it, it's so so the trip was sort of a cobbled together trip. Now, it's right that that um, Hillary Clinton and Secretary Gates went also at the same time to talk about naval issues in the South China Sea. But but it's not as if they've been ignoring China. There are all these uh, dialogues with China all all the time. So if your point is it's a sort of surrounding or containment of China, he was at China on the previous trip, and they're they're, they're, there all the time. Could things change in a very fluid way? Yes. But remember my saying that over 30 years, there have been, number one, the expectation of real disagreements, and number two, a band of tensions. The question is, are we outside the band? I think we're not outside the band that is included in past times, Tiananmen Square, and the, the bombing in, in the, uh, of the Chinese embassy, where many Americans in China say that's the one time they've ever been afraid, when there was this either accidental or, from the Chinese point of view, deliberate bombing of the Chinese embassy in the Balkans. And, and this was really touched a nerve among uh, Chinese people. So that's point one. Point two on political freedoms. I think that, that Chinese people, like people anywhere, have a mixture of material and spiritual desires. And at China's point in recent history, if you think that, that China's last century has been almost uniquely catastrophic in the world, that until about 30 years ago, to be in China would be like what Western Europe went through from 1915 to 1950 was what China went through for about a century. There was mass starvation. There was cultural revolution. There were all sorts of, there was civil war. There was invasion. And so it is understandable that just as Western Europeans of the 50s wanted stability and Americans of the 1870s wanted some stability, Chinese of the late 70s and 80s and 90s wanted not to have disasters because disasters were their recent past. And so as material welfare has continued, the natural human interests in intellectual expansion, knowing, being able to travel and see the world, that has, has expanded. I think that a lagging indicator for many Chinese people is structural democracy, because to many of them, that seems like it's answering, a, solving a problem they don't view as a problem at the moment. But, but independence, in the way you were saying it, of having China be independent and proud as a nation, and for them as individuals to have more individual rights to do things, I think that sense is a strong among Chinese people as among any. And Indians, Americans, Pakistanis, Brits, Australians, Canadians have our whole tradition of, uh, of, of democracy, which we pay heed to. That's less important to many people in China now, but I think expanding the human spirit is as interesting to them as it is to anybody. That may be the right note to end on. <laughs> so. So uh, we've just seen uh, a remarkable survey of uh, the changes that we've been living through for the last 50 years in Jim's 
presentation and in this question and answer session. I'd just like you to think back to the time when UCSD was created uh, in 1960 and the state of uh, the cultural discussion in America of the Pacific. Uh, the sorts of movies that sort of bracketed that period were either residues of the Cold War, Gregory Peck dealing with the underground Mao invasion of the United States, uh, or John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Uh, and south of the border, we had Orson Welles as the sheriff of Tijuana, uh, locked in corruption. And those were the images that we had of the Pacific, sort of a cultural curiosity, a Cold War residue, something that was not part of the intrinsic American discussion. And it's exactly the point that Jim made, that it is about the learning uh, by America of the fact that we are immersed in this much grander historic transformation that is the responsibility of both the media in its thoughtful moments of coverage and of the American research universities to carry forward. And all I can promise you on behalf of my colleagues and the faculty of IRPS and everyone here is that we will do our part in that learning mission. So thank you very much for symbolizing that. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.